0: One of the things I learned at the ROM was this really beautiful thing about failure being a positive thing and not being a negative thing. And that you know, design thinking and failing fast, they're all, they pathways for innovating. Welcome to
1: The Problem Spaces. These are the stories at the intersection of life and business life. We have candid conversations with leaders of all stripes who share the authentic truths at the heart of their everyday life Each episode is relatable, refreshing, and deeply human. I'm Lisa Grogan, and on today's show, we're talking to Cheryl Blackman, who is the Interim General Manager of Economic Development and Culture at the City of Toronto, and we'll get to the interim piece later. Like so many of us, Cheryl has an interesting career trajectory, beginning with a degree in social work, and then starting her career in the airline industry before shifting over to senior positions at the Royal Ontario Museum, the ROM, and then taking on a big job for Canada's largest city in Toronto. I first met Cheryl when we were starting Overlap 10 years ago, and she was leading visitor experience at the ROM. She's a person who drives change, big change, from the inside out. And to be able to do that well, you have to be an influencer and bring people into the vision of what's possible. The good thing about status quo is that it can be changed, and Cheryl Blackman is never content with status quo, so she's always driving change. Cheryl has spent her career pushing for diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, well before the focus that we've seen over the last couple of years. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Cheryl to the podcast and open up a fresh conversation. Today, Cheryl will talk about leadership, life, and navigating problem spaces. So welcome to the podcast, Cheryl.
0: Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Lisa.
1: Yeah, I'm delighted. I'll say it's a Saturday morning that we're recording this and we are both at home and I have a busy little household with three kids and uh Apologies if there's some noise in the background, even though everyone has said that they would be quiet. So uh, let's jump off from there, Cheryl. um I, I wanted to start with your early days. Uh, where did you grow up? and who were some of your early uh, inspirations or role models?
0: I am a first generation Canadian, um, born and raised in the northwest end of the city of Toronto. So for me, you know, it was the new Canadian settler. Experience in that my parents both are from the Caribbean and we came as a, a group of extended family, actually. My nuclear family and aunts and uncles, um, you know, came to Canada together. And so, from my earliest memories, you know, there was always a connection to traditional Caribbean values, and those connections have always stayed strong for me. And that's one of the, I think, one of the amazing opportunities of being a Canadian is that you can still. You know, value where you are living, but also hold on to those very important uh, traditional learnings and teachings. So some of my earliest influences, of course, are my parents. My father was a very strong influence on me coming up because he always said they came to Canada to try to create a better experience for my sister and I, and that we had to really focus on education and learning and just trying to be you know, as much a part of the Canadian experience as possible. Um, And certainly, um, you know, always my father had this kind of perception that, you know, my experiences as a woman of color, as a black woman, were going to be different experiences. But no matter what I did, I needed to bring along other people who were diverse and so really try to make sure that I was supporting and helping and just building community. And so, you know, we grew up in a neighborhood that was very, very racially and ethnically diverse. And it was fantastic. It was growing up. Uh, In its own way, like being in a kind of model UN experience. Uh, So my closest girlfriends growing up was a woman who was Yugoslavian, a woman who was Japanese and a woman who was from the Caribbean, from Trinidad and Tobago. So had always been surrounded by this idea of diversity and inclusion. And it was just natural and normal. So that that really, I think, informed the way that I see the world, because my world has always been diverse and always been inclusive. And I've always seen the richness that that brings to me. And so when I moved into the business and working world, I just thought that was what was going to happen naturally. Right. Um, And I'm looking
1: forward to getting into that. I think when, you know, in terms of growing up, did you know that you were ambitious Or was that something that was more your parents putting on you? Or was that something that really came from within? And was there even a moment where you were able to pinpoint that, wow, there's something in you?
0: Mm -hmm. I think um, growing up, I really began to, to, to feel the weight of my father's desire for me to be something special. So from early days, you know, he had this expectation that I was going to law school and I was going to be a lawyer. And we'll talk about what happened with that later on, but <laughs> because I really always wanted to please my dad. So, you know, anything he said, it was fathers and their daughters, right? Anything he said, and in terms of his aspirations for me, were my aspirations for me. And it took me until third year university to realize that I needed to craft my own journey and not just be executing his vision for our future. That is Of course, bright, but certainly not my dream. It was his dream. So that's um, it's something to 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 this day that we're still unpacking. I think, but ultimately, you know, the way that I think um, new Canadian parents define success is very much along the lines of you know, lawyer, doctor, dentist, that kind of uh, professional career, and how I define success is very much professional as well, but not necessarily in law, and so it's been one of those things where I think I knew early on that I was somebody who was going to be an advocate because I have always had a very strong sense of right and wrong. Um, but not only just having that sense of right and wrong, wanting to do something when I saw something that didn't match my definition of right and wrong. So I I wasn't ever somebody who could passively watch something go wrong and say nothing. Um, I would have to engage and, that is, I think, part of my DNA. And when I speak to my sister who's older, you know, it's funny how siblings don't always see themselves in each other. But now that we're older, um, I'm increasingly understanding that that's something in our DNA. It's just not, it's not an accidental. Right. Right. Yeah, no. And, and that is
1: absolutely the Cheryl Blackman that, you know, I have met. Um, absolutely. And so it's interesting, you and I actually went to the same university, I was checking out your years on, and we would have been there at the same time. So it's interesting, we did not cross paths, but we could have easily. Um, and it's interesting, because you're undergrad, you you have a degree in social work. And that is very, very different from a lawyer, uh, but I can see the advocacy piece. Um, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, just your, your undergrad experience and, and why social work and uh, why, uh, well, we'll get into then going into airline, which is very different from social work. But anyways, just maybe tell me a little bit about that choice and your experience at university.
0: Absolutely, Lisa. So I think, you know, as I mentioned, I was very interested in, in pleasing my father. And so what I discovered was, you know, I wanted to be in a, in a, in a helping profession that had an entry pathway into law school. And at the time, you know, the social work degree allowed me the opportunity to, to do a third year exit from my degree and a, and a first year entry into law school if I qualified to get in. Um, but as I was going through my social work degree, I was, I was loving it and I was working, you know, I had a very, uh, kind of challenging undergraduate experience because I worked my way through a paid my way through the entire experience. Um, so it was always very much a, a tension between working, paying my rent and, and getting my, my work done. So it was always very um, long days, lots of effort to kind of keep things moving. But in my third year, I realized that, you know, law was not my passion, it was my dad's passion. And so I really wanted to find my own path. So I, I had social work to the minor in public administration as well, which would also support the law kind of lens. But it wasn't my passion. It wasn't the thing that made me say, you know, I can't breathe if I don't do this. It's just, it wasn't that for me. So that was a big moment, you know, in a young woman's life to realize that this thing that you've been gearing up for, for so many years, isn't what you really want to do. And having that conversation with my father, yeah, it has not ever really sunken in. Let's put it this way. <laughs> You know, so so, social work degree, minor in public administration, subsequent MBA, you know, he still asks me, you know, so uh, are you still thinking about law? You still going to do a law (laughs) degree? And I'm like, you know, dad, no, that is, it's not going to happen. You know, sorry. It's not what I want to do. So not the best fit for me, but certainly, you know, I think when parents have a dream for their children, letting go sometimes is a real challenge. But obviously it's worked out for me, so I'm okay.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So how did you get started in the airline industry? Like what was the leap that, that happened there? Was it happenstance or was it something very intentional?
0: That was a family business. My dad worked at the airport. Um, so my sister worked at the airport. And so I had to be arm twisted to work at the airport because at the time, you know, just coming out of back when there was a grade 13, uh, finishing school a half of a semester early. So I got a small gap period. There was a time when you wanted to follow your friends and my friends were all going to work professional office spaces. And I, I was like, I, I don't want to go work in an airport and I don't want to work with my father. Like I don't want to be that close to you. you know? <laughs> I'm 17 year, you know, years old. I don't want to be that close to you. And I have this six, seven, eight month gap until I go to university. I don't want to work with you. And so interestingly enough, my father kind of kept at me, kept at me. And I kind of, I said, okay, fine, I'll go to the interview. And grudgingly, I went to the interview, was offered the job and and it was interesting. And so I actually got two offers, one from American Airlines and one from the handling agency that I eventually went to work with, which was Hudson general. And the reason why I didn't go to work for American airlines was because they wanted me to travel to the U S to do my training. And I didn't like flying. Wow. <laughs> and and so I thought, you know, I I don't know that I'm comfortable going by myself to, to the U S to do training. I, you know, I, I want to stay close to home until I understand what this whole new opportunity is. And I'm, and, you know, I'm only going to be here for six months. So, I don't, I don't need to go to the U.S. to go to training. And that was what I was thinking, you know, with my 17-year-old mind. And then you know, 16 years later, um, you know, went from a handling agency to Air Ontario, Air Ontario. It's London, Ontario-based, owned and operated company at the time. The Deleuze family owned and operated that organization that got uh, acquired by Air Canada in later years and then moving from Air Ontario to Air Canada. So I spent those formative parts of my early adulthood working in aviation and loving every minute of it. And then 9-11 happened. And it was not just a game changer for the airline industries as we know today, but for the world. And it was also a game changer for me in that I saw an era, an industry that I loved completely change uh, in a way that was so bound up in stress and anxiety and fear that it, it felt incompatible with, my love affair with the industry. So in my early 30s I had to make a decision about a career change which was horrifying because I really I had been working my way up the rungs of the of the airline, you know, moving from initially being a front of counter check-in agent to being a a supervisor to being a manager. And so I was I had aspirations to just keep moving in the in the industry. But yeah, 9- 9- 9 changed it for me. So at the point when I, I lived through that experience and it was horrible, you know, the year and a half after that experience happened, I started to make some plans. I hired a professional coach and that happened because of a friend who said to me, you know, I really think that everything you're talking about, you know, vis-a-vis changing your job, you would benefit from professional coaching because it sounds like such a big change for you. She introduced me to a, a particular woman who became my professional coach for well over a, a year and God rest her soul because she passed away from cancer in the last number of years, but a fantastic woman, a dynamic force who really taught me the value of professional coaching and helped me to understand that, you know, a professional coach doesn't do the work for you. The professional coach really just helps you to lay the groundwork for your own decision making. And so, yeah, that's where it, that's where it took me well, it's interesting because I think part of um when we all look back at our early
1: careers, you know in your twenties you're just so focused on you know impressing people and moving up through the ranks and you know trying to you know hit something by thirty or early thirties and you, you see that and then um but I think you're you're trying to do it all on your own, and I think that wisdom comes with age and you do understand who who do I, who's my team around me? Who's helping me really think about me? So it's interesting because in in your early 20s, like in that time um, before you made the shift, um, you know, tell me maybe, um, maybe tell me a, a little bit, what was, what was one of your biggest failures or what was one of your biggest you know, did you have a big failure, Uh, something that you can laugh about today, but at the time it was, you know, very, very um, important to you. You know, what advice do you wish you had been given in that first part of your career trajectory um, when you were starting your career? What what piece of advice do you
0: wish you would have had? So that's an interesting question for me, because with, you know, two parents coming from the Caribbean who didn't have a a deep academic background themselves, there was never a lot of advice uh, about what to do. It was always just like study hard, you know, um, pay attention, do your lessons, do well on your tests, you know, but they they couldn't give me guidance in terms of how to navigate, uh, you know, the the school system because they didn't have experience in the the North American school system, you know, and so they were dealing with uh, an entirely different model out of the, you know, out of the UK, you know, A levels and O levels, that kind of. But I think one of the things that I would tell my earlier self is never stop planning your future because interestingly enough, K to 13 at the time is a, is a, is a structure. It is a plan. Then you go on to university and you spend another four years, continued structured plan. You graduate and suddenly you stop planning because you've now somehow arrived. You think and what you begin to discover is no no you should still be planning the planning that got you to the place where you were able to acquire your education you know high school and graduate studies through undergrad and grad school that is all planned it's all structured and when you let go of the planning you kind of you kind of are like that um that thing you see at the gas station or a car kind of um dealership that's kind of blowing in the wind you're kind of like that thing blowing in the in the wind and so I discovered because of 9-11 that I stopped planning because I thought, well, I'm in my spot. This is where I'm going to be. And I'll just keep, you know, doing the next assignment and going after the next promotion until I get to the job that I ultimately don't know what it's titled, but till I get to that thing. And that was, yeah, that was, I think, an absence of understanding of how these ecosystems work. So when I was in my coaching experience, that's what helped me to see that, you know, this idea of a five-year plan. Is pretty critical, and actually working the plan is even more critical. So it's it's really important to have a plan, to work the plan, and to treat it like an iterative journey. Um, and and I think along the way you're going to discover this things in the plan that you just you know you don't want anymore, or you don't or you didn't think you were going to feel uh, either positively or negatively about that thing that you had in the plan. But you need to have that room to be able to iterate the changes. Um, In your plan. And so for me, you know, I I think one of the things I learned at the ROM was really beautiful thing about failure being a positive thing, and not being a negative thing and that, you know, design thinking, and failing fast, they're all really, they're pathways for innovating, you know, so a lot of new creative things happened, both in the airlines, especially as a result of 9-11. I mean, we literally were recalibrating the way that you deliver airline services every single day from the point that 9-11 happened to, to current day. I mean, even right now, living uh, with a pandemic. But that ability to see iteration as an opportunity and not a failure, yeah, that is something I would definitely say to my younger self, um, get ready. It's so much fun to iterate. It's so much fun to innovate. And it doesn't have to be hard and it doesn't have to be something that's complicated, but it will open so many opportunities that you never dreamed of. I
1: love that framing because I think you're right. And, uh, you know, you do it in your work. You're doing it every day. You're making the plan. You're working the plan. You're, you know, trying to do the best for whatever organization you're with. But to be able to apply that and open the space to do that for yourself, I think is so important. And, you know, I know Brock and I, we have a, a business advisor and they don't give you the answers. They just help to guide you and to really, you know, we're making all the decisions, but it's just, it's so helpful, so framing. And so let's talk about the ROM. I mean, tell me about then you you have this coach, you're, you know, sort of working on yourself for a year, you know, that you need to leave the airline industry, but museum, like how? And I'm, I know at the museum, you you were very... Uh, critical positions around visitor experience, but maybe just tell me like, did they find you or did you find them? And how did that transition happen?
0: Yeah. So this is such a bizarre story. So one of the benefits of being an airline employee is that you can travel with friends and family and you can do it for short durations or long durations. So I, you know, at the time I was traveling with a a girlfriend of mine to the, uh, to the Caribbean. And we were sitting on on an Air Canada flight heading down to the Caribbean, and we were looking at newspapers because, you know, they walk around, they hand you the newspaper at the beginning of the flight. So she had a Globe and Mail, I had a National Post, and we're just, you know, skimming the kind of headlines before the aircraft takes off. And she flips open her paper, and she's skimming through it, and she ends up in the classifieds. And she she turns to me and says, you know, you're talking about changing, and you you know, you you want a new opportunity. Look at this job at the ROM. And I'm like the ROM. She says a director of visitor experience. I, she says I read this over and Cheryl, it sounds like exactly what you do for Air Canada. I said get out of town. Let me see that. And she hands me the, the newspaper, and I read it over. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it does sound like what I do at the ROM at the excuse me at Air Canada. But you know it is actually an airline being transitioned into a museum context in terms of the skill set and the attributes and the and what the job. Posting says they want, and I'm like, wow, this is crazy. But I said to her, you know what? We're heading south. We're gonna we're, we're on vacation. Like, give me that newspaper. So I took the newspaper, I folded it up, put it in my carry-on, and I didn't think about it again, until I got home, and I was unpacking my suit- suitcases, and I opened my carry-on, and there was the Globe and Mail looking at me, and I'm like, you know, let, let me just look at this one more time. And I looked at it again. And I thought, okay, you know what? This is this is crazy. I need to apply for this job, and so I applied for the job. Half a year went by and I didn't hear anything. So I thought, oh, they must've found somebody. But I said, you know what? Curiosity's got me. I I just got to find out. And this is something I'd never done because i only ever worked in one organization, one industry before, which is airlines. I thought, okay, I'll find the number for human resources and I'll just call them and say, you know, hi, my name is Cheryl Blackman. I applied for this job. I'm just wondering, you know, whatever became of it. So I found the number, I called human resources and I'm speaking to the woman is doing the hiring. And she says, Cheryl Blackman, I was just about to call you. And I'm like, what? She goes, yeah, well, that that recruitment, we just have been so busy with all the changes that we are doing here that we got delayed on that recruitment. But I was just in the process of beginning to set up interviews. And I was just about to call you. I said, oh, isn't that great? <laughs> It wasn't that great. I said, "Well, fantastic." So I said, "You know, well, whenever you're ready, I'm still interested." So I'm. It's really great to hear that that opportunity hasn't been filled yet. And so I just left it at that. And so, long story short, um, went through the competition and later found out hundreds of people applied for the job, and I was a successful first director of visitor experience at the Royal Ontario Museum, and was just like beside myself thrilled. Like it was so much fun and it was it was great because at the time I was also looking at other airline opportunities and, you know, I was competing for a job in another airline got offered the job. So I had to actually choose between continuing to work in aviation or transitioning to a museum. And so the person who was recruiting me from the other airline, who was somebody I'd gotten to know when I was working at Air Canada, I called them up and I said, look, this is have your opportunity. And I'm so grateful for this but I also have this other offer, which is so like, not what we're doing right now. And I told him about what the job was. And he says to me, you know what, Cheryl, take the museum job. It's, it's going to stretch you. It's so out of your comfort zone. you are amazing. Obviously we offered, we offered you this job, but this like, this is different, you know? And he says, you know, this, if you ever decide that you don't like museums come back, but this is kind of really a great, unique opportunity. So, congratulations really happy for you and uh wish you all the best and so i took the air i I left the airline job and took the museum job and uh yeah i think it's one of you know there's been some really good decisions that i've made and that was one of the best ones i've made because it, it was this thing where i didn't go with comfort i didn't go with what would just have been like getting in the car and being on automatic i went to a five speed Standard <laughs> that needed to needed to have all kinds of new muscles in my brain and in my uh, system flexed to be able to, you know, rise up to a, a new challenge and really one of the best decisions I ever made. Well, and for context, so
1: Royal Ontario Museum is a flagship museum um, in Canada um, and it's in the heart of the city of Toronto. It's a it's a beautiful. Um, building. It's a beautiful space. I also come with a museum background. And when I was in England, I adored working for what is now the National Media Museum. And it's part of the Science Museum Network over there and absolutely loved it and have a passion for it and have a passion for the role that museums can play in our communities. And I think that museums traditionally were more about, you know, those highbrow audiences. My grandmother was a ROM member for years and years and years. And I remember going to all the member events and they were lovely, but um, you know, the, the um, I think that the, the museums, the shift in the museum space and the shift, um, you know, probably in the last couple of decades, I know certainly in England and our museum, where we were in Bradford, which is a it's a community that has all kinds of challenges. But I was always very proud of our museum because um, it was fun. It, was, it had an IMAX, but we also had amazing photography collections. But um, back in the day, you know, we would put Sony PlayStations in the museum that were free. Like our museums over there are free. and But we would put the PlayStations at the like furthest place away so that kids who wanted to play on the PlayStations, they could come in and play, but they actually had to move through the whole museum. It's kind of like, you know, the grocery store put the milk at the back so that you have to walk through the whole grocery store. So I'm curious, Cheryl, like the ROM went through significant change in your time, uh, both physically. I think you were there for the redevelopment um, and it was quite controversial in itself. So I'd love for you to just talk about some of the change. There was change at the top, like there was executive change, CEO change and i think when you and i met um there was a new ceo in Jan- janet carding and the neat thing was janet carding actually worked for the science museum so i had known her way back when and she's amazing i think and um has done amazing things so i, I need to stop talking but i cuz i could talk about museums all all day but i think a couple things first maybe just talk about working through uh change coming in with that in that first position you know driving a mandate and i would love to talk um, also about diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, um, and and in particular, um, I think you were part of in 2016 um, an apology uh, reconciliation with the Coalition for the Truth about Africa. So, I'm the, I'm this is like a open-ended question, but maybe just tell me about the experience generally, and then maybe we can go into a
0: little bit more detail with some of these specific things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Lisa. I mean. So I'm uh, really grateful to William Thorcell. Uh, William Thorcell joined the Royal Ontario Museum after being editor in chief at the Globe and Mail, distinguished uh, leader, distinguished academic, a charismatic, charismatic leader, and he had just a lot of force. And uh, so he was the, the kind of the, the the driving force behind the creation of the director of visitor experience position. And I ended up uh, working with Joel Peters who went from the ROM on to Tourism Toronto and then went into academia and had, you know, again, a distinguished leader in his own right as well. But during my years, uh, early years at the ROM, it it was very much the director of visitor experience was initially a contract position. And, you know, because it was so brand new, folks weren't sure whether this was going to be something that was going to yield any real impact. And so they wanted to kind of have like a safety net and to be able to decide whether this was valuable and making a difference. But the intention was to build a a visitor experience that was really a driving force to this beautiful new uh, Michael Leechin crystal, you know, this Daniel Leapskin iconic, controversial design. And so I was really excited by the fact that, you know, I would be there literally from the ground up, be working and walking staff through construction areas um, and getting to see the building built from the inside out. Um, and so build a really strong connection with the the crystal and, you know, like or not like it, it, it did exactly what it was meant to do. It was, it was this thing that was meant to inspire dialogue, to begin to get people to think about this space as being something more than just stayed and stuffy. And it needed to be this beacon, this calling card for the world that, you know, the Royal Ontario Museum is not only, still here, but will be here into the future. Um, And that there was a deep set of reflection required by everybody, you know, all of the leadership, all of the staff about, you know, what is the vision for this space and what are we going to do to make this Canada's museum? So it was, it was exciting, exciting times because we went through and I'm so honored to have been part of that team for 14 years. And we created so many firsts and, and really just leveraged so much of the deep Uh, academic and professional expertise that live within that space to be able to tell stories in a way that many, many folks had never seen before. Um, You know, so I'm I'm very, very honored. And, you know, one of the programs that I'm always going to be proud of is, is ROM Community Access. And that was a program that I call ROMCAN because what I heard in the early years of joining the ROM is the ROM can't do this. The ROM can't do that. And when I was thinking about ROM Community Access Network, I thought, well, the ROM can do it and the ROM will do it. And so ROMCAN was born and, you know, when I left the museum in 2018, ROMCAN was celebrating its 10th anniversary. So this is a program that when I left had over 80 plus partners and now has over a hundred partner organizations. And it was important to me to make sure that there would be a way to, for the ROM to be a connector with community, to meaningfully address issues around access to arts and culture spaces, and for it to be a welcoming space that would inspire generations to come. It had already inspired many, many generations of people, but I needed it to, through this program, to continue to not only inspire the kind of the usual suspect Audience, which you know, I wanted it to inspire and really look like Toronto in terms of the you know the breadth and depth of the folks who were being inspired to engage uh, within a, a museum space because museums are notorious for being spaces that feel very oriented towards a a European Eurocentric worldview. Nothing wrong with a European Eurocentric worldview. We're so lucky to live in a world where there's many worldviews. And primarily beginning with an Indigenous worldview, considering that we're settlers in this territory, wanting to make sure that, you know, we, we were beginning to contemplate different worldviews, different experiences, different communities, because they all make up Toronto, they all make up Canada, and they all make up the world. So, you know, I think one of the one of my early revolutionary kind of thinking moments was when I read the work of Richard Sandal out of Leicester. In the UK, who teaches museum studies, and he he writes a lot about social inclusion and social exclusion in, in museums. And as a you know someone who had a training as a social worker, reading Sandel's work, I just was like, okay, I have landed. This is it. And it, all the lights went on in my mind because you know there here was this, this academic teaching in museum museum studies in Leicester and in, in the UK, who really understood that museums have to confront their history of social exclusion and begin to create new experiences that are inclusive. And his, for me, was the foundation for everything I was beginning to think about and do. And so I, I really kind of dove in to academic readings, speaking to colleagues around the world, and just really got excited about the prospect that, you know, this thing could be a beacon for real change, as well as, you know, uh, we were working with the Honorable Adrian Clarkson and uh, her husband, John Ralston Saul with the Institute of Canadian Culture and just really wanting to make sure that what we were doing there was all about making sure that we could welcome new Canadians and have them feel like they were part of, of this, you know, deep abiding truth that you can come to Canada, you can build a new experience, you can give of yourself. um, and you can really, you can really be contributing to the fabric of, of your, of your community. When I speak about the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, which I misspoke earlier, <laughs> I think, you know, ultimately the Honourable Adrienne Clark and the work she did with her husband, John Ralston-Stahl, to create the Institute for Canadian Citizenship. This was going to be for us the springboard opportunity to, to be and welcome new Canadians at the beginning of their journey in this territory as settlers and helping them to understand that their gifts were valid that they could give back to and be part of Canadian success stories. And so it was really exciting for me to be able to see that we were going to build these partnerships where we were going to talk about citizenship and rights and obligations, but that we would actually manifest that into real action through the programs and partnerships that we created. So that was really the opportunity.
1: Wow. It's interesting, you know, sort of the genesis of this stuff. And I think to your point, you know, you sort of think about what's possible, you know, and so being able to think big, I think is really exciting. One of the programs that I was so proud of at the museum, and I was a fundraiser at the museum, and then I became communications director, but we started very actively partnering with the police and the library, the library was next door to us. And we started a a special program for young offenders, and bringing young offenders in and we had a, you know, a television studio, and we, um, the police would bring them and drop them off at the museum. And the people from the library and the museum, you know, helped teach them some new skills. And they actually developed their own TV show and it was great. And like they did a whole episode on how to nick a car, which was great, because then they brought police in to interview police and they were like, great, police are on the other side. And you know, as a fundraiser, I would just bring potential sponsors in and just say, like, stand in the background and watch this. And, you know, people wanted that kind of change. Like, this was good. It was so positive. And we even ended up hiring some of those kids out of that program that, you know, came and worked at the museum. And they, like, when you bring the community in, they feel a sense of ownership, to your point. And if there was, you know, someone causing trouble, well, they were like, don't do this in my museum, you know, and it was just the win-win-win-win-win all around for that museum was there. And I've seen that at the ROM. And I think you should be really proud, obviously, of the legacy and the fact that, you know, the program has, has continued and is continuing to grow. Tell me about the 2016 apology. I don't know how those kinds of things like what has to happen in the background and what kind of timeline it takes to get there. And, you know, the public just sees the public facing stuff. But maybe if you can take us through, you know, what was the situation and what does it take within an organization like the ROM to
0: get there? So thanks for that question, Lisa. I think, you know, the apology to the Black community was was long overdue. And I think, you know, everybody kind of recognized that by the time that I got involved in in the conversation. And I think one of the things that was clear to me was, you know, I would be, as part of a visitor experience, kind of um, thinking, I would be approaching and talking to visitors who paid an admission to a museum to try to figure out if they were unhappy, how to make it right. And I I, I found it really unusual that, you know, we had an entire community who who felt that there was an exhibition that had happened, you know, uh, 25 or so years before the Apology Was offensive, that was disrespectful, that had, you know, very affected them in a way that it was really a demonstration of systemic racism, and that nobody thought it was important to close that chapter and create a new opportunity to work in in partnership with community to kind of move the work forward. And, you know, of course, when I say that, it sounds like it's a gross oversimplification. But I think the reality is, you know, that was the perception of the community. The community was feeling very strongly that nobody cared about how they felt and that the the inaction was a very strong signal that you know what our feelings are not important and it, it it was really that understanding for me once i became aware of that understanding was incompatible with everything that you know the the crystal stood for and for everything that a visitor experience stands for um and it was incompatible with you know, notions of truth and reconciliation, it was just incompatible with so many things. Every community should and must feel dignity and respect. And if if we create something and it doesn't generate that feeling, then we have culpability for it. So for me, I put myself out there to say, you know, look, I'm prepared to take a, a leadership role in advancing a conversation that needs to happen, hasn't happened, not because I'm a person of color, Because my, you know, my role dictates that I I have an opportunity to take some leadership with this. And, you know, I was very fortunate to work with Ras Rico, who is, you know, the key leader of the CFTA, in in that he was always very generous in telling the truth of the experience, which also meant for him and his colleagues, reliving trauma over and over again. And, and that was so hard, but he was always so dignified, always so respectful, always so generous, but always so focused on the fact that, you know what, if it was the last thing that he did in his life, he was going to see the ROM be accountable for something that they weren't being accountable for. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we can be as big as we want to be in any space, you know, as complex as an institution as want to be, create. But we have to remember who we serve. And we don't serve some people, we serve all people. And when we create things that are resulting in, you know, community really being hurt and injured because of our creation, yeah, we have to do something about that. And it's hard work to come to a turning of the page. And I think, you know, I'm just really grateful that RAS Rico and the CFTA were willing to come to the table and be clear as they always were about the, the things that the ROM needed to do to be accountable, to be able to make an apology that actually could be accepted, you know? And I think we see the experience even being mirrored right now through truth and reconciliation and, you know, the experiences that are, that are happening on the, on the West coast with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and, and the indigenous communities. And, and just set that kind of feeling that when we give an apology, we have to be clear that that apology is packaged in a way that it actually includes action. And we're all on this journey. And, and I think this is really, I think community was asking of us is that if we're going to apologize, it has to be meaningful and it has to go deep and it has to be uh, inclusive of the actions that demonstrate that change is finally going to come. Um, and it's not just about saying, sorry, you're, you know, sorry, you had a bad go, uh, it is you know sorry you had a bad go and here are all the things we're going to do to try to begin to rebuild a fractured and damaged relationship so that we can get to a place where we can work together respectfully with dignity and really reflect your stories in your own voice, not in our voice. Um, and these are the things that are the these are the heavy lifting journeys that we are all on. And, and, you know, in terms of making sure that uh, we appreciate that everybody's story is valuable. And the way that those stories are told should actually elevate people and not denigrate people. And, you know, intention is, is really a very different thing than um, outcome. And I think that's the challenge that we all face. And mistakes are gonna be made, but I think it's how we manage those mistakes and how we recover from those mistakes that are the difference between whether relationships will continue to move in a positive direction or derail completely and, and not. And so I think you know it's it's gonna take the ROM 25 years to undo you know what has been done. And for some people, there will never be an undoing because you know, lives were changed for many people were strong enough and bold enough to stand up against what they knew to be, uh, inappropriate and were, and, you know, and, and getting those folks, um, made whole, that's a very different journey. And that's one that's, you know, it's hard to kind of quantify what it'll take to make that happen.
1: Thanks for sharing that. Um, I love that framing. Intention is different than outcome, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, right now, the meaningful apology with action is absolutely uh, where organizations of all kinds must go, um, including a, a you know a smaller firm like Overlap, um, you know. But really, uh, making sure that we're looking inward and and uh, taking action along the way. So let's let's jump to City of Toronto. Um, you know, you you drove big change. I think for 14 years at the ROM. Very, very successful and continued to elevate within that system. And then uh, City of Toronto, now this one makes absolute sense because then you moved into Director of Museums and Heritage Services. So that's overseeing all of uh, Toronto's uh, cultural um, organizations. Um, But today you have a little bit of a different role than that. So maybe just tell me about coming into the city and what you viewed as the opportunity space. We know that cities um, aren't known for being all that nimble and all that, uh, you know, ready for change all the time. And, you know, they sort of have a lot of muscle memory in, uh, you know, carrying on traditional ways. And we know that you're a driver of change. So I'm assuming that that was tied into you taking this role.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that I would be, I I must kind of underscore is that I am very fortunate to be a a leader who is able to work and create influence amongst teams and the kinds of change that I'm trying to create, it doesn't happen because I'm this kind of, you know, Marvel comic character who comes in and makes it all happen by herself. It is a, it is, this is a change of this kind of magnitude is a team sport. So I am so fortunate to have worked with the most amazing colleague throughout my career. Uh, and, and, you know, I think this is one of those things that, you know, we should be teaching, I think, as part of, of our undergraduate and graduate studies more, is the power of creating influence, and the also the power of understanding uh, what Sun Tzu says is the art of war. Because I gotta tell you, if you pick the wrong hill to die on, it, you're gonna die on the wrong the wrong hill at the wrong time, and then your whole your battle is is over before you you know start. And part of my transition from um from a, a um airline to a museum, part of that coaching was actually really getting comfortable with doing some deep research about what kind of experiences have other people had in the world that could inform the way that I think about the future. So when I took on this role at the city of Toronto, um, I was super excited because one of the thing, one of the last things I did at the ROM was work on the apology. And it really underscored for me, the importance of not making excuses. And I think and, and we might not feel within an institution that the things we do are excuses, but let's be absolutely clear that the communities that we serve, they see our inaction as excuses. So I wanted to be able to take on a role where um, I could really test this idea that, yeah, we can change, we can make some hard decisions, but we can become community hubs and, and really give museum spaces back to the communities who really are the owners of those spaces and, and do that in a fulsome way to be able to help everybody find their own story within those spaces. Because I think that's the ultimate gift. Like for me, when somebody comes into a museum and sees a story that is a reflection of themselves and that story empowers and, and helps them to traject themselves into a new kind of opportunity for Kind of building their own pathway for success. That's what I think museums have the power to do. I remember going on trips with you know within the scope of my role at the ROM and seeing my history. You know, as brutal as my history is, you know, the stories of of, of enslavement and you know and the transatlantic slave trade and seeing that captured in a way that actually wasn't um, denigrating to me, but actually could inform me about. You know who I am as a resilient human being. That that was for me game changing, extremely powerful. And wanting to 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 have a spaces where folks could come in not only see their stories because they contributed to the creation of those stories, but they could also create connections between stories that maybe weren't obvious and weren't there previously. So this opportunity to have ten sites to work in partnership with. Um, You know, museums, professionals who had living history spaces that were telling, for some people, feels like a a very singular narrative because it tends to be, again, colonial, Eurocentric, and one period. Having that connect to the past, the present, and the future, that was what I saw to be the opportunity and have been really, really fortunate to be able to begin to work with teams to, to begin to advance this journey and, you know, and I think it's one of the things that I learned early is that colonial history is my history as much as it is a Eurocentric narrative. It's not about vilifying any narrative. It's about making sure that there is a fulsome telling of a story so that we recognize, for example, in the case of Toronto, that you know we are here on the traditional territories of people who've been here since time immemorial, of indigenous people who've been here since time immemorial. We are all settlers on this land which means that when we tell a story about the city of Toronto, it needs to include all of the players. It can't just be about, you know, this is a story of one community. It has to really reflect all of the communities that that help to enrich and inspire and to elevate and to ignite and to breathe fire and passion through successes and failures into this place that we call Toronto, you know? And when we can do that, we begin to live up to our own stories about, you know, diversity, our strength, because that is what we say Toronto is, and that's what the world knows us as. And so, bringing in or closing the gap between who we say we are to the world and who we actually are in our own backyards is, is really the opportunity. And, and that was one I just could not resist.
1: Oh, I could just sit here and listen to you all day, Cheryl. I love it, and I think that the authenticity is just—it just. It just- comes through there is that in your DNA and so I guess like with the pandemic I think it's during the course of the pandemic you're now interim general manager um, of economic development um, and culture tell maybe tell me a little bit about the experience of like how is the how is the pandemic um, impacted things obviously things had to like everybody rapidly move uh, quickly but um, you know Maybe just tell me about this move up to interim general manager and why and why it's interim and where you're at with the city right now or where they're at through this prolonged time of just huge change in the world.
0: So I think, you know, I am very, very fortunate to have joined the Toronto Public Service when I've joined the Toronto Public Service, in that I understand that there is a perception that public servants are not nimble, but I, I think If we are being truthful, I have to say that I am so honored to be among colleagues who have been as nimble and more nimble than I think anybody could have ever dreamed or thought for this really kind of singular focus of saving lives during a pandemic and and really fighting to ensure that COVID-19 doesn't decimate more lives than it already has and I am surrounded every day by some of the most thoughtful, giving professional colleagues and, and who've really just put everything out there to support Torontonians and to and help us to make sure that we're all on this journey together but ultimately getting ready to to rebuild and to recover and to kind of create new successes coming up from what has been an incredibly challenging time. So, you know, hats off to Mayor John Tory, hats off to, you know, the council, to uh, city manager Chris Murray, deputy city manager Paul Johnson, and the entire public service, you know, like unbelievable, unbelievable commitment. So for for us, you know, it has been about the very great deal of hard pivots, like lots of hard changes, hard, hard turns. Um, but the turns have been all in the service of making sure that, you know, Torontonians could see the light at the end of the tunnel um, and that we could, you know, prioritize safety and, and really making sure that that was the driving force behind what we we're doing. So certainly, you know, in economic development and culture, we are very, very focused on making sure that we are supporting the businesses, both small businesses uh, Mid-sized businesses, industry, really for this idea of rebuild and recovery. And we're also interested in in the way that culture and art come together and heritage to make sure that these things are all, you know, parts of the demonstrations of, of vitality that those continue to exist. Um, and and once safe to do. And we're right now in that period where you know uh, we are seeing changes and we're seeing a lifting of different types of um, of, of of precautions. As things are beginning to lift and as we're beginning to get um, more access to you know, going out and being in retail spaces, event spaces, as we're returning to the office, our team is there to make sure that we are helping folks find those opportunities for prosperity. For us, you know, we're clear that prosperity needs to be inclusive. And so inclusive economic development uh, is something that we're very, very focused on. And we see equity as a as a really important piece of that and that and that is really owed very largely to some of the work that's been coming from Deputy Mayor Michael Thompson and Blake Goldring who were working on a build back stronger report that went to council and really began to show us four pillars for action where we could really drive change but this idea that you know equity should be the spine of our work going forward so that nobody is left behind because we all saw not just in, in Toronto not just in Canada but globally we saw the way that covid-19 has really pulled back the covers off of inequity and has made it very clear who's disproportionately being Impacted by COVID-19, and that has been largely Black, Indigenous, people of color communities. So, for you know, our history, there's been really not as many opportunities to be in the same boat. But COVID-19 has made it possible for an entire world to be in the same boat at the same time, and seeing the same challenges levied against you know uh, equity-deserving communities. And so, making sure that COVID-19 um, is, a, is a turning point from not just recognizing that there are challenges to actually, again, taking those very um, clear actions to create sustained change. That is certainly what the team is focused on. And we have uh, so many great people who've contributed to thinking about what a new future could look like. Um, And those community voices have really been a, a central part of that work through the Toronto Office of Recovery and Rebuild and the TOR report. So ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, right now we're on this journey to build back stronger, to make sure that, you know, as we kind of create this new future, it doesn't leave an entire segment of our population behind because we were not thinking about or accounting for them. We are on a journey towards meaningful, meaningful change.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Actually, that's a really um, it sort of swells anyone uh, who cares about um, you know everybody. I think it just sort of swells some pride there, and I think that that's really such a great focus for the city, and that feels really good. I think Cheryl, we're sort of coming to time, and as we wrap up, this has been wonderful. A couple closing questions, I suppose, for you. Number one. Uh, What's the best piece of advice that someone has given to you or that has you you have held on to during your career?
0: I think one of the best pieces of advice that I've held on to is ask a lot of questions. Ask a lot of questions and don't be afraid to look like you don't have all the answers because you don't. You know and there's there, I think there the time in our lives where we, we had to come to the table appearing to have all the answers because we were the subject matter expert there that's very different than leadership and leadership it means that you have to be comfortable saying hey I don't have all the answers but I'm gonna amass a team of people who collaboratively we're gonna create a, a path to get to the outcome that we intend to get to and that outcome needs to be impactful. So we've got to be changing lives. We can't just be counting widgets.
1: Love that. Okay. You're a natural problem solver. You're solving problems every day. Uh, Do you think problem solving abilities and skills and mindset, do you think it's nature or nurture?
0: I think it's both. I think, I think human beings have, since our existence, solved problems all the time, you know, from from the first time that we created fire to warm our bodies and, and cook our food to present day. Like we, I think we are an amalgam of both of those factors, nature and nurture. And and problem solving is so much fun because it is that thing that leads to innovation. So before it was innovation, it was problem solving. You know, and I think it's a great opportunity for ideas to exchange, for people to dream big and to and to make mistakes and to, and to learn from those mistakes. And if you look at folks who are, really successful. They didn't get success because they went from A to B without having a ton of failures in between. They just figured out how to learn from those mistakes faster and they kept moving. And I think we've got to take away this kind of shame that we've associated with failure because really and truly, if we want to see prosperity, we've got to be able to iterate we've got to be able to try different things and to learn and evolve our thinking and our practice and we and we can do that in a way that's not wasteful but it certainly is critical that we don't believe that one person is the keeper of all you know that that kind of a wizard of oz moment you know like those those days are long gone any solution has to come because of a collective action that includes many minds merging together and many voices merging together to be able to arrive at a a positive output. So I'm excited by the fact that, you know what, we live in a time where we can not only share in person, but certainly we've learned all in the last 18 months that virtually borders are kind of like unimportant. So, you know, all the things that we kind of believe we couldn't do. COVID-19 has shown us that, yeah, this this mantra about no more excuses is really one that is something that we can get our heads around because we can't go back. We shouldn't go back to 2019 we know too many things now about what the future could be like if we actually learn from this last 18-19 months and begin to build and stack up against a new uh, set of opportunities there's a lot of lot of work to do a lot of people have made you know tremendous sacrifices lots of lives have been have been impacted and and, and unfortunately lots of lives have been lost both you know locally nationally globally but we can't let that be for naught. We've got to celebrate and create new opportunities and honour those lives by creating a better future. So I am always going to be super, super honoured to be in a position to be a public servant and to be a servant leader and just to be able to do my very best to give back to the folks who contribute to making Toronto, Ontario and Canada the amazing place that it is. Thank you. Final question, Cheryl. Uh, What would a totally alternate career path
1: may have been for you? Don't say lawyer.
0: (laughs) Uh, Totally alternate. So it's, it's funny. One of the things that I've been getting really interested in is futurism. So I think a totally alternate career looking forward would be a futurist.